1. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great. Volume 3 of 14 Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard It was not built with the idea of ever becoming a place in history, simply a boy's cabin in the woods. 5. Rich. Pie and Butch Word are the bunch that built it. 5 was short for fiber. And we gave him that name because his real name was Wood. Rich got his name from being a mudsuck. I got his because he was a regular pie face. And they called me Butch for no reason at all except that perhaps my great-great-grandfather was a butcher. We were a fine gang of youngsters. All about 14 years. Wise in boys' deviltry. What we didn't know about killing cats. Breaking window panes in barns. Stealing coal from freight cars. And borrowing eggs from neighboring hencoops without consent of the hens. Wasn't worth the knowing. There used to be another boy in the gang. Skinny. One day when we ran away to the swimming hole after school, this other little fellow didn't come back with us. You see, there was the little kid's swimming hole and the big kid's swimming hole. The latter was over our heads. Well, Skinny swung out on the rope hanging from the cottonwood tree on the bank of the big kid's hole. Somehow he lost his head and fell in. None of us could swim, and he was too far out to reach. There was nothing to help him with. So we just had to watch him struggle till he had gone down three times. And there where we last saw him a lot of bubbles came up. The inquiry before the justice of peace with our fathers, which followed, put fright in our bones. And the sight of the old creek was a nightmare for months to come. After that we decided to keep to the hills and woods. This necessitated a hut. But we had no lumber with which to build it. However, there were three houses going up in town and surely they could spare a few boards. So after dark we got out old Juliet and the spring wagon and made several visits to the new houses. The result was that in about a week we had enough lumber to frame the cabin. Our site was about three miles from town, high up on the Adams farm. After many evening trips with the old bear and much figuring we had the thing done. All but the windows, door, and shingles on the roof. Well, I knew where there was an old door and two window sash taken off our chicken house to let in the air during summer. And one rainy night three bunches of shingles found their way from Perkins' lumber yard to the foot of the hill on the Adams farm. In another five days the place was finished. It was ten by sixteen, and had four banks, two windows, a paneled front door, a back entrance and a porch altogether a rather pretentious camp for a gang of young ruffians. But it was a labor of love, and we certainly had worked mighty hard. Our love was given particularly to the three house builders and to Perkins down in town. Of course we had to have a stove. This we got from Bowen's hardware store for two dollars and forty cents. He wanted four dollars. And we argued for some time. The stove was a second-hand one and good only for scrap iron anyway. Scrap was worth fifty cents a hundred. And this stove weighed only two hundred fifty. So we convinced the man our author was big. At that we made him throw in a frying pan. For dishes and cutlery. I believe each of our mother's pantries contributed. Then a stock of grub was confiscated. The storeroom in the felonstery furnished Heinz beans, chutney, and a few others of the 57. John had run an A.D. in the Philistine for Heinz and taken good stuff in exchange. For four years after that, this old camp was kept stocked with eats all the time. We would hike out Friday after school and stay till Sunday night. At Christmas time we would spend the week's vacation there. Many times had I tried to get my father to go out and stay overnight, but he wouldn't go. One time, though, I did not come home when I had promised, so father rode out on Garnet to find me. 
instead of my coming back with him he just unsaddled and turned Garnet loose in the woods and stayed overnight. We gave him the big dunk with two red quilts, and he stuck it out. Next morning we had fried apples, ham and coffee for breakfast. What there was about it I did not understand, but John was a very frequent visitor after that. You know we called father, John, because he said that wasn't his name. He used to come up in the evening and would bring the red one or Sammy the artist or St. Jerome the sculptor. Once he brought Michael Monaghan and John Sales the universalist preacher. Mike didn't like it. The field mice running on the rafters overhead at night chilled his blood. He called them terrible beasts. From then on we youngsters were gradually deprived of our freedom at camp. These visitors were too numerous for us and we had to seek other fields of adventure. John got to going out to the camp to get away from visitors at the shop. He found the place quiet and comforting. The woods gave him freedom to think and write. It so developed that he would spend about four days a month there, writing the little journey for the next month. How many of his masterpieces were written at the camp I cannot say. But for several years it was his retreat and he used it constantly. He reminded us boys several times when we kicked. That he had a good claim on it for didn't he furnish the door and the window frames. I never suspected he would recognize them. George Washington he left as fair a reputation as ever belonged to a human character. Midst all the sorrowings that are mingled on this melancholy occasion I venture to assert that none could have felt his death with more regret than I because no one had higher opinions of his word. There is this consolation, though, to be drawn, that while living no man could be more esteemed. And since Dad Nunn is more lamented, Washington, on the death of Tilton Dean Stanley has said that all the gods of ancient mythology were once men, and he traces for us the evolution of a man into a hero, the hero into a demigod, and the demigod into a divinity, by a slow process, the natural man is divested of all our common faults and frailties, he is clothed with superhuman attributes and declared a being separate and apart, and is lost to us in the clouds. When Greenough carved that statue of Washington that sits facing the Capitol, he unwittingly showed how a man may be transformed into a Jove, but the world has reached a point when to be human is no longer a cause for apology, we recognize that the human, in degree, comprehends the divine, Jove inspires fear, but to Washington we pay the tribute of affection, beings hopelessly separated from us are not ours, a god we cannot love, a man we may. We know Washington as well as it is possible to know any man. We know him better, far better, than the people who lived in the very household with him. We have his diary showing how and where I spent my time. We have his journal, his account books and no man was ever a more painstaking accountant. We have hundreds of his letters, and his own copies and first drafts of hundreds of others, the originals of which have been lost or destroyed. From these, with contemporary history, We are able to make up a close estimate of the man, and we find him human splendidly human. By his books of accounts we find that he was often imposed upon, that he loaned thousands of dollars to people who had no expectation of paying, and in his last will, written with his own hand, we find him cancelling these debts, and making bequests to scores of relatives, giving freedom to his slaves, and acknowledging his obligation to servants and various other obscure persons. He was a man in very sooth. He was a man in that he had in him the appetites, the ambitions, the desires of a man. Stuart, the artist, has said, all of his features were indications of the strongest and most ungovernable passions, and had he been born in the forest, he would have been the fiercest man among savage tribes. 
but over the sleeping volcano of his temper he kept watch and ward, until his habit became one of gentleness, generosity, and shining, simple truth, and, behind all, we behold his unswerving purpose and steadfast strength, and so the object of this sketch will be, not to show the superhuman Washington, the Washington set apart, but to give a glimpse of the man Washington who aspired, feared, hoped, loved and bravely died. The first biographer of George Washington was the Reverend Mason L. Weems. If you have a copy of Weems' Life of Washington, you had better wrap it in chamois and place it away for your heirs. For some time it will command a price. Fifty editions of Weems' book were printed, and in its day no other volume approached it in point of popularity. In American literature, Weems stood first. To Weems are we indebted for the hatchet tale, the story of the colt that was broken and killed in the process and all those other fine romances of Washington's youth. Weems' literary style reveals the very acme of that vicious quality of a truth to be found in the old-time Sunday school books. Weems mustered all the little Willie stories he could find, and attached to them Washington's name, claiming to write for the betterment of the young, as if in dealing with the young we should carefully conceal the truth. Possibly Washington could not tell a lie, but Weems was not thus handicapped, under a mass of silly moralizing. He nearly buried the real Washington, giving us instead a priggish, punk youth, and a Madame Tussaud, full-dress general, with a waxworks manner and a wooden dignity. Happily, we have now come to a time when such authors as Mason L. Weems and John F. C. Abbott are no longer accepted as final authorities. We do not discard them, but, like Samuel Pepys, they are retained that they may contribute to the gaiety of nations. Various violent efforts have been made in days agone to show that Washington was of a noble line, as if the natural nobility of the man needed a reason forgetful that we are all sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But Perks, peerage, lends no light, and the careful, and prejudiced, patient search of recent years finds only the blood of the common people. Washington himself said that in his opinion the history of his ancestors was of small moment and a subject to which, I confess, I have paid little attention. He had a bookplate and he had also a coat of arms on his carriage door. The Reverend Mr. Weems has described Washington's bookplate thus, Argent, two bargules in chief, three mullets of the second, crest, a raven with wings, endorsed proper, issuing out of a ducal coronet, or, Mary Ball was the second wife of Augustine Washington. In his will the good man describes this marriage, evidently with a wink, as, my second venture and it is sad to remember that he did not live to know that his venture made America his debtor. The success of the Union seems pretty good argument in favor of widowers marrying. There were four children in the family, the oldest nearly full-grown. When Mary Ball came to take charge of the household, she was 27, her husband 10 years older. They were married March 6, 1731 and on February 22nd of the following year was born a man-child and they named him George. The Washingtons were plain, hard-working people and poor. They lived in a small house that had three rooms downstairs and an attic, where the children slept, and bumped their heads against the rafters if they sat up quickly in bed. Washington got his sterling qualities from the Ball family, and not from the tribe of Washington. George was endowed by his mother with her own splendid health and with all the sturdy Spartan virtues of her mind, in features and in mental characteristics. He resembled her very closely. There were six children born to her in all, but the five have been nearly lost sight of in the splendid success of the firstborn. 
I have used the word, Spartan, advisedly, upon her children. The mother of Washington lavished no soft sentimentality. A woman who cooked, weaved, spun, washed, made the clothes, and looked after a big family in pioneer times had her work cut out for her. The children of Mary Washington obeyed her, and when told to do a thing never stopped to ask why and the same fact may be said of the father. The girls wore Lindsay Woolsey dresses, and the boys tow suits that consisted of two pieces, which in winter were further added to by hat and boots. If the weather was very cold, the suits were simply duplicated a boy wearing two or three pairs of trousers instead of one. The mother was the first one up in the morning, the last one to go to rest at night. If a youngster kicked off the covers in his sleep and had a coughing spell, she arose and looked after him. Were any sick? She not only ministered to them, but often watched away the long, dragging hours of the night. And I have noticed that these sturdy mothers in Israel, who so willingly give their lives that others may live, often find vent for overwrought feelings by scolding, and I for one, cheerfully grant them the privilege. Washington's mother scolded and grumbled to the day of her death. She also sought solace by smoking a pipe. And this reminds me that a noted specialist in neurotics has recently said that if women would use the wig moderately, tired nerves would find repose and nervous prostration would be a luxury unknown. Not being much of a smoker myself, and knowing nothing about the subject, I give the item for what it is worth. All the sterling, classic virtues of industry, frugality and truth-telling were inculcated by this excellent mother, and her strong common sense made its indelible impress upon the mind of her son. Mary Washington always regarded George's judgment with a little suspicion, she never came to think of him as a full-grown man, to her he was only a big boy, hence, she would chide him and criticize his actions in a way that often made him very uncomfortable, during the Revolutionary War she followed his record closely, when he succeeded she only smiled, said something that sounded like, I told you so, and calmly filled her pipe, when he was repulsed she was never cast down. She foresaw that he would be made president, and thought he would do as well as anybody. Once, she complained to him of her house in Fredericksburg, he wrote in answer, gently but plainly, that her habits of life were not such as would be acceptable at Mount Vernon, and to this she replied that she had never expected or intended to go to Mount Vernon, and moreover would not, no matter how much urged a declination without an invitation that must have caused the son a grim smile. In her nature was a goodly trace of savage stoicism that took a satisfaction in concealing the joy she felt in her son's achievement, for that her life was all bound up in his we have good evidence. Washington looked after her once and supplied her with everything she needed, and, as these things often came through third parties, it is pretty certain she did not know the source, at any rate she accepted everything quite as her due, and shows a half-comic ingratitude that is very fine. When Washington started for New York to be inaugurated president, he stopped to see her. She donned a new white cap and a clean apron in honor of the visit, remarking to a neighbor woman who dropped in that she supposed these great folks expected something a little extra. It was the last meeting of mother and son. She was 83 at that time and her boy, 55. She died not long after. Samuel Washington, the brother two years younger than George, has been described as small. Sandy whispered, shrewd and glib, Samuel was married five times, some of the wives he deserted and others deserted him, and two of them died, thus leaving him twice a sad, lower widower, from which condition he quickly extricated himself.
He was always in financial straits and often appealed to his brother George for loans. In 1781 we find George Washington writing to his brother John, In God's name, how has Samuel managed to get himself so enormously in debt? The remark sounds a little like that of Samuel Johnson, who on hearing that Goldsmith was owing £400 exclaimed, Was ever a poet so trusted before? Washington's ledger shows that he advanced his brother Samuel $2,000, to be paid back without interest. But Samuel's ship never came in and in Washington's will we find the debt graciously and gracefully discharged. Thornton Washington, a son of Samuel, was given a place in the English army at George Washington's request, and two other sons of Samuel were sent to school at his expense. One of the boys once ran away and was followed by his uncle George, who carried a goodly birch with intent to give him what he deserved, but after catching the lad the uncle's heart melted, and he took the runaway back into favor. An entry in Washington's journal shows that the children of his brother Samuel cost him fully $5,000. Harriet, one of the daughters of Samuel, lived in the household at Mount Vernon and evidently was a great cross, for we find Washington pleading as an excuse for her frivolity that she was not brung up right. She has no disposition, and takes no care of her clothes, which are dabbed about in every corner, and the best are always in use. She costs me enough and this was about as near a complaint as the father of his country, and the father of all his poor relations, ever made. In his ledger we find this item, by Miss Harriet Washington, gave her to buy wedding clothes, 100.00. It supplied the great man joy to write that line, for it was the last of Harriet. He furnished a fine wedding for her, and all the servants had a holiday, and Harriet and her unknown lover were happy ever afterwards so far as we know. From 1750 to 1759, Washington was a soldier on the frontier, leaving Mount Vernon and all his business in charge of his brother John. Between these two there was a genuine bond of affection. To George this brother was always, Dear Jack, and when John married, George sends, respectful greetings to your lady, and afterwards, love to the little ones from their uncle, and in one of the dark hours of the revolution. George writes from New Jersey to this brother, God grant you health and happiness. Nothing in this world would add so to mine as to be near you. John died in 1787, and the President of the United States writes in simple, and disguised grief of, the death of my beloved brother, John's eldest son, Bushrod, was Washington's favorite nephew. He took a lively interest in the boy's career, and taking him to Philadelphia placed him in the law office of Judge James Wilson. He supplied Bushrod with funds, and wrote him many affectionate letters of advice, and several times made him a companion on journeys. The boy proved worthy of it all, and developed into a strong and manly man quite the best of all Washington's kinsfolk. In later years, we find Washington asking his advice in legal matters and excusing himself for being such a troublesome, non-paying client. In his will the Honorable Bushrod Washington is named as one of the executors and to him Washington left his library and all his private papers, besides a share in the estate. Such confidence was a fitting goodbye from the great and loving heart of a father to a son full worthy of the highest trust, of Washington's relations with his brother Charles. We know but little. Charles was a plain, simple man who worked hard and raised a big family. In his will Washington remembers them all, and one of the sons of Charles we know was appointed to a position upon Lafayette's staff on Washington's request. 
The only one of Washington's family that resembled him closely was his sister Betty. The contour of her face was almost identical with his, and she was so proud of it that she often wore her hair in a queue and donned his hat and sword for the amusement of visitors. Betty married Fielding Lewis, and two of her sons acted as private secretaries to Washington while he was president. One of these sons Lawrence Lewis married Nellie Custis, the adopted daughter of Washington and granddaughter of Mrs. Washington, and the couple, by Washington's will, became part owners of Mount Vernon. The man who can figure out the exact relationship of Nellie Custis' children to Washington deserves a medal. We do not know much of Washington's father, if he exerted any special influence on his children we do not know it. He died when George was 11 years old, and the boy then went to live at the Hunting Creek Place with his half-brother Lawrence, that he might attend school. Lawrence had served in the English Navy under Admiral Vernon, and, in honor of his chief, changed the name of his home and called it Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon then consisted of 2,500 acres, mostly a tangle of forest, with a small house and log stables. The tract had descended to Lawrence from his father, with provision that it should fall to George if Lawrence died without issue. Lawrence married, and when he died, aged 32, he left a daughter, Mildred, who died two years later. Mount Vernon then passed to George Washington, aged 21, but not without a protest from the widow of Lawrence, who evidently was paid not to take the matter into the courts. Washington owned Mount Vernon for 46 years just one half of which time was given to the service of his country. It was the only place he ever called home, and there he sleeps. When Washington was fourteen, his school days were over. Of his youth we know but little. He was not precocious, although physically he developed early, but there was no reason why the neighbors should keep tab on him and record anecdotes. They had boys of their own just as promising. He was tall and slender, long-armed, with large, bony hands and feet very strong, a daring horseman, a good wrestler, and, living on the banks of a river, he became, as all healthy boys must, a good swimmer. His mission among the Indians in his 21st year was largely successful through the personal admiration he excited among the savages. In poise, he was equal to their best, and ever being a bit proud, even if not vain, he dressed for the occasion in full Indian regalia, minus only the war paint. The Indians at once recognized his nobility, and named him Konotemkaris, plunderer of villages and suggested that he take to wife an Indian maiden, and remain with them as chief. When he returned home, he wrote to the Indian agent, announcing his safe arrival and sending greetings to the Indians. Tell them, he says, how happy it would make Konotemkaris to see them, and take them by the hand. His wish was gratified, for the Indians took him at his word and fifty of them came to him, saying, Since you could not come and live with us, we have come to live with you. They camped on the green in front of the residence, and proceeded to inspect every room in the house, tested all the whiskey they could find, appropriated eatables, and were only induced to depart after all the bedclothes had been dyed red, and a blanket or a quilt presented to each. Throughout his life Washington had a very tender spot in his heart for women. At sixteen, he writes with all a youth's solemnity of a hurt of the heart incurable, and from that time forward there is ever some fair matey to be seen in the shadow. In fact, Washington got along with women much better than with men, with men he was often diffident and awkward, illy concealing his uneasiness behind a forced dignity, but he knew that women admired him, and with them he was at ease. 
when he made that first western trip, carrying a message to the French, he turns aside to call on the Indian princess, Aligatha, in his journal, he says, presented her a blanket and a bottle of rum, which latter was thought the much best present of the two, in his expense account we find items like these, treating the ladies two shillings, present for Polly five shillings, my share for music at the dance three shillings, lost at loo five shillings, in fact, like most Episcopalians, Washington danced and played cards, his favorite game seems to have been, loo, and he generally played for small stakes, and when playing with, the ladies, usually lost, whether purposely or because otherwise absorbed, we know not, in 1756, he made a horseback journey on military business to Boston, stopping a week going and on the way back at New York, he spent the time at the house of a former Virginian, Beverly Robinson, who had married Susanna Phillips, daughter of Frederick Phillips, one of the rich men of Manhattan, in the household was a young woman, Mary Phillips, sister of the hostess, she was older than Washington, educated, and had seen much more of polite life than he, the tall, young Virginian, fresh from the frontier, where he had had horses shot under him, excited the interest of Mary Phillips, and Washington, innocent but ardent, mistook this natural curiosity for a softer sentiment and proposed on the spot, as soon as the lady got her breath he was let down very gently, two years afterwards Mary Phillips married Colonel Roger Morris, in the King's service, and cards were duly sent to Mount Vernon, but the word elegant of time equalizes all things, and, in 1776, General Washington, commander of the Continental Army, occupied the mansion of Colonel Morris, the colonel and his lady being fugitive Tories, in his diary, Washington records this significant item, dined at the house lately Colonel Roger Morris confiscated and the occupation of a common farmer, Washington always attributed his defeat at the hands of Mary Phillips to being too precipitate and, not waiting until ye lady was in ye mood, but two years later we find him being even more hasty and this time with success, which proves that all signs fail in dry weather, and some things are possible as well as others. He was on his way to Williamsburg to consult physicians and stopped at the residence of Mrs. Daniel Park Custis to make a short call was pressed to remain to tea, did so, proposed marriage, and was graciously accepted. We have a beautiful steel engraving that immortalizes this visit, showing Washington's horse impatiently waiting at the door. Mrs. Custis was a widow with two children. She was 26, and the same age as Washington within three months. Her husband had died seven months before. In Washington's cash account for May, 1758, is an item, one engagement ring L2.16.0, the happy couple were married eight months later, and we find Mrs. Washington explaining to a friend that her reason for the somewhat hasty union was that her estate was getting in a bad way and a man was needed to look after it, our actions are usually right, but the reasons we give seldom are, but in this case no doubt, a man was needed, for the widow had much property and we cannot but congratulate Martha Custis on her choice of, a man, she owned 15,000 acres of land, many lots in the city of Williamsburg, 200 negroes, and some money on bond, all the property being worth over $100,000 a very large amount for those days, directly after the wedding, the couple moved to Mount Vernon, taking a good many of the slaves with them, shortly after, arrangements were underway to rebuild the house, and the plans that finally developed into the present mansion were begun, 
Washington's letters and diary contain very few references to his wife, and none of the many visitors to Mount Vernon took pains to testify either to her wit or to her intellect. We know that the housekeeping at Mount Vernon proved too much for her ability, and that a woman was hired to oversee the household, and in this reference a complaint is found from the general that housekeeper has done gone and left things in confusion. He had his troubles. Martha's education was not equal to writing a presentable letter, for we find that her husband wrote the first draft of all important missives that it was necessary for her to send, and she copied them even to his mistakes in spelling. Very patient was he about this, and even when he was president and harried constantly we find him stopping to acknowledge for her an invitation to take some tea, and at the bottom of the sheet adding a pious bit of finesse. Thus, the president requests me to send his compliments and only regrets that the pressure of affairs compels him to forego the pleasure of seeing you. After Washington's death, his wife destroyed the letters he had written her many hundred in number an offense the world is not yet quite willing to forget even though it has forgiven. Although we have been told that when Washington was six years old he could not tell a lie, yet he afterwards partially overcame the disability. On one occasion he writes to a friend that the mosquitoes of New Jersey can bite through the thickest boot, and though a contemporary clergyman, greatly flurried, explains that he meant stocking. We insist that the statement shall stand as the father of his country expressed it. Washington also records without a blush. I announced that I would leave at eight and then immediately gave private orders to go at five, so to avoid the throng. Another time when he discharged an overseer for incompetency he lessened the pain of parting by writing for the fellow, a character. When he went to Boston and was named as commander of the army, his chief concern seemed to be how he would make peace with Martha. Oh, ye married men, do you understand the situation? He was to be away for a year, two, or possibly three and his wife did not have an inkling of it. Now, he must break the news to her. As plainly shown by Cabot Lodge and other historians, there was much rivalry for the office, and it was only allotted to the South as a political deal after much bickering. Washington had been a passive but very willing candidate, and after a struggle his friends secured him the prize and now what to do with Martha, writing to her. Among other things he says, You may believe me, my dear Patsy, when I assure you in the most solemn manner that so far from seeking the appointment I have done all in my power to avoid it, the man who will not fabricate a bit in order to keep peace with the wife of his bosom is not much of a man. But, Patsy's, objections were overcome, and beyond a few chidings and sundry complainings, she did nothing to blot the great game of war. At Princeton, Washington ordered campfires to be built along the brow of a hill for a mile, and when the fires were well lighted, he withdrew his AR. 